Well, church, it is good to worship with you on this Sunday evening. And here, as we find ourselves once again in the Gospel of Luke, only a few short verses today, chapter 18, verses 15 to 17. Uh, I want to recognize that these verses are ones which you might often have read and which you you might have uh, heard teachings about, heard explanation about. Uh, Indeed, as I was growing up in the church, I have heard many uh, of these phrases thrown around about what it means to be like a child in the kingdom of God. And to the best of my ability and the Lord's gifting, I will try to resolve as clearly as I'm able tonight these verses for you uh, and help you to understand why it is important that as a Christian you get the teaching of Jesus here in the text. So the first thing we need to do is lay a foundation of what Jesus is talking about when he talks about children. There's no lie that you and I tell ourselves that is more pervasive in the modern world than the lie that we are independent and we have no one else that we need to rely on for sustenance, for career, or anything else. When I was a freshman in high school, you can think about that time in your own life. For some of you, that might be some time ago, and for some of you, that might be in more recent memory. One of the big deals when you're a freshman in high school is you have to ask the question, how am I going to assimilate with the various social groups, the various people in classes? You're going to a new school, a new location, a different friend makeup. How are you going to assimilate with these people? And one of the things I did and my siblings did and my parents encouraged us to do was to get involved in sports early on so we could uh, build relationships, build friendships with new people. So we would have friends going into the school year uh, particularly because in football you start practicing months in advance before you start uh, class uh, in, in August as a high schooler. Now, that was a great idea, except for the fact that when I was uh, a freshman playing football in the practice field, I actually broke my leg uh, to the point where I was in a wheelchair day one of school. <laughs> now, all of the social uh, anxiousness that you might feel as a, a normal freshman walking into a high school is still at play, and now you don't know how to use a wheelchair, you have a full leg cast, your foot is just kind of hanging out for everyone to see because you can't get a sock over the cast, and now I have to try to make friends with all of these things hanging out. But the worst part about that situation was not the social anxiousness that I had in trying to build relationships. The worst part was for the first time in my life, I was consciously aware of how much I needed other people to help me out throughout the day. It's one of the worst feelings that I've ever experienced because it was so humiliating for me to realize that I needed someone to help me get out of bed in the morning. If I had to walk too far, I needed someone to help push me in the wheelchair because my arms would get tired. If I needed to get to class in a certain period of time, I needed friends to help me carry my textbooks because I couldn't move all that stuff on my own. Now that was true for me when I was a child, but I wasn't consciously aware of it in the same way that I was when I was 14 years old. There is no pervasive lie that is more permanent in our world than that you, when you're growing up, you are told you will one day be independent, autonomous, self-sustaining. And that's just a lie that you might be able to tell yourself for a time, but it's simply not true. It's not true in reality, and it's, it's certainly not true when it comes to faith and dependence on God in our daily walk. This is the teaching that Jesus is addressing here the need for the disciples to know that the kingdom of God is accessible to those who realize that they are not independent upon entry, who realize that they are reliant on God at every step of the way. These are the kinds of people 
to whom the kingdom is open to. The lie of the enemy is you are self-sustaining. You don't need God. You don't need others. You don't need friends. Find it within yourself and you can make everything happen. But Jesus says, actually, you've got to recognize you're like a child, dependent, humbled, reliant on others. This is what you need to realize about yourself. It was only uh, a short time ago, actually, uh, I think it was last year, that a book was published by a Christian author by the name of Kelly Capick with the title, You Are Only Human. And one of the central chapters in that book, one of the chapters that stuck out to me the most, was when he was talking about his realization that he is dependent on everyone else. And he's a, he's a college professor. And one of the things he likes to do with his freshman students is he likes to tell them to one day when they're in the shower and they're thinking about life and thinking about the classes they have coming up, just to look down at their belly buttons. And remember the fact that no matter how strong and independent they feel at that moment in time, how in control of classes they are, at one point in time, they were dependent wholly on someone else for nourishment and nutrition and sustenance. The belly button is a permanent reminder of the fact that you are actually not autonomous, you never have been, and that actually never changes throughout the life of a human. Now that's true for you because I'm willing to guess, I'm venturing to guess, that all of you can relate to that experience. You have belly buttons that you can look at <laughs> to remind you of the fact that you are actually rather connected, rather dependent on others. And the danger is that you believe all of that and then you think at the same time, but I'm autonomous when it comes to matters of faith and spiritual health and things that I can't see, the invisible things. But Jesus is telling us here in the text that we ought to be like children in our faith. So with that background in mind, knowing that pervasive lie that you all no doubt have been taught or even to some degree believe in your daily walk, that you are autonomous, let's turn to the teaching of Jesus here in the Gospel of Luke. He says in verse 15, the the situation is that there are are people, uh, likely crowds and people who are following Jesus' teaching, who are bringing their infants to him so that he might touch them. Now, this is probably Jesus laying hands on to either heal the children, but more likely to bless the children. When you're uh, living in the ancient world in the first century, the life expectancy of a child is not what it is in the 21st century Western world. You don't have medication. You don't have vaccination. You don't have doctors that are really more than charlatans at that point in time. You don't, you don't have a lot going for you if you get sick, if you get injured, if something goes wrong. The life expectancy is pitifully low in the first century, such that if you were to make it to the age of 20, it would be rather a monumental achievement in the ancient world. So these Jewish people, these people who are following Jesus' teaching, are bringing their children to him for a blessing, because he's a rabbi, he's a teacher, uh, and what they would do is they would bless these children so that uh, God would put his favor upon them so that the child might make it in life, so that they would make it out of their infancy, so they would, they would uh, live and live full lives. So this is the situation on the ground. And what the disciples do is they observe that this is happening and they think this is not worth Jesus' time in his ministry. He's got important things to do. He's got lame people to heal. He's got lepers to cure. He's got Pharisees to rebuke. He's got all kinds of stuff on his agenda. He's not, he's not into the business of blessing infants. And what Jesus does is he turns to them and he basically tells them, no, bring the children to me because, well, these children are going to be an object lesson to everyone else. It's important that we recognize that our modern understanding of children, particularly the romanticized idea that children are are innocent and children are lovely and children are cute, this is not an idea 
that the ancient world believes. The ancient world thinks of children primarily in the terms of young, immature, pretty much useless, maybe useful when they're older and grown up. It's actually only in the literature of Israel that we find this blessing view of children. And even the disciples, you can see, have internalized this kind of idea that children are not worth the time for Jesus. Well, what other groups in the Gospels do people believe are not worth Jesus' time? The Pharisees think that sinners aren't worth the time of Jesus. Why does he eat with sinners, this man? They don't think that tax collectors are worth the time of Jesus. The prostitutes, they're not worth the time of Jesus. There's plenty of people in the gospel we've already met who people believe that Jesus should just not spend his time with. He shouldn't party with them. He shouldn't interact with them. They're just not worth the investment. And in each of those cases, Jesus has taken these groups of people and made an object lesson that there's something to be learned in the fact that the kingdom of God is accessible to more than the self-sufficient, more than the learned, more than the perfect, more than the righteous. We even saw last week as Tim preached The kingdom of God actually does not belong to the self-righteous. The kingdom of God belongs to the humble, the dependent. This is the consistent teaching of the gospel. And it is really no more so here. This is exactly what is being taught. In the ancient world, children are helpless and completely dependent upon their parents. And Jesus is basically saying, if you want to enter into the kingdom of God, verse 17, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, meaning in total helplessness, in total dependence, they will not enter it. Now, it's been observed, and uh, you might be observing this even as we have read, uh, you've heard the sermon last week, and you're reading the text tonight, and even if you glance at the passage, uh, verse 18 and following, Luke has done a marvelous job of doing what we would call a sandwich structure for his teaching. He contrasts these children with the Pharisee in the previous parable, who is uh, going on and on about how he has merited salvation before God. Then he goes to the children and he says, you need to be like a child to enter the kingdom. And then in the next parable, the man we're introduced to is the rich young ruler who says something akin to, I've actually been perfectly obedient to the law of God since my youth. And And Luke is saying, it's not the righteous Pharisee who proclaims about his good deeds. It's not the deceived ruler It's little children who actually admit their dependence upon God for entrance into the kingdom. This is the central idea of these verses. So we can learn a couple of things from this text. Number one, we are dependent. There's no getting around this truth. We are dependent. Your nature will preach it to you. If you go home and visit your parents, they will tell it to you. If you go and go to your grandparents, they will tell it to you. If you go to your boss and you ask them, how is my paycheck getting to me? He will tell you, you're dependent on me to send that paycheck in. You're dependent on the weather holding up, your health holding up, the roads holding up to get to work on time, your car holding up. You're dependent on all kinds of things in your daily life. There is no escaping the truth of dependence. So it is spiritually. The Bible testifies to the truth that you and I are dependent. We are dependent upon others to grow us and nurture us in the admonition of the Lord. We are dependent upon the Holy Spirit to move in our hearts, to convict us of sin, to move us to a state of helplessness before God. We are dependent on God to give us his holiness because we cannot earn it for ourselves. In fact, the Bible teaches clearly that one of the greatest self-deceptions is that we actually can merit holiness for ourselves and we can be right with God apart from his mercy and grace. We are dependent. This is the teaching of the scriptures. 
And to realize our dependence is step one in the right direction. And it's one of the most difficult things, the most difficult pills for us to swallow as people who are constantly told by the world around us that we are actually not dependent. Particularly in the West, we are often taught that the American dream, the vision of success, is to not be reliant on people, not to be reliant on the economy, not to be reliant on a paycheck to paycheck kind of job. You need to be built up with a house that you don't have a mortgage on. You need to have a sustained 401k. You need to have retirement saved up. So you're not dependent on all these other people and systems and structures. That's just a lie. You cannot escape your dependence at some level. And that's, that's no more true than it is spiritually as well. One of the great lies that has entered into the church uh, really in the 1950s and following in the West was this idea that what the goal of the church is is to morally rehab the conscience of man and thus lead man to a place of uh, well, greater morality, greater love for one another, greater treatment of one another. This is the goal of religion. Except that when you read the Israelites understanding the goal of Jesus' teaching to them here in the Gospel of Luke, and if you were to go Paul's teaching about his, his ministry, you'll realize actually one of the primary things that the New Testament teaches is that the goal of religion is not to build us up morally. The goal of religion is to teach us that we are actually not moral, far from it. And we are to be reconciled with that fact first and foremost before we can actually be rehabbed in any way, shape, or form. It's not about us going from bad to better and best. It's about us recognizing that we're kind of down in the pits to begin with. And we need to recognize that and cry out to God for mercy and grace because he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He is a kind God, a merciful God, a forgiving God, and we are a creature dependent upon his mercy. That's being like a child. It is being childlike in our approach to the Father. We're dependent, this, te this text teaches us, but it also teaches us not only are we dependent, but Jesus is accessible. The whole Gospel of Luke preaches this. This text preaches it. Go a couple chapters back, you'll see it again. Jesus is an accept, uh, accessible man. He is uh, accessible to sinners. He's accessible to tax collectors. In John's gospel, he's accessible to the Pharisees when they come to him by night and ask him all kinds of questions. He's accessible to anyone and everyone who would have access to him. He's accessible to Samaritans when they meet him at Wells. He is an accessible kind of person. He's an accessible God. And that's good news because our dependence is a problem that, well, we can't actually solve unless God makes himself accessible to us to remove us from our state of dependence and, and bring us into his nurture, bring us into his uh, love, his care. The idea of Jesus being accessible is, is echoed sharply in this text, but it picks, up, it picks up a broader theme in all of Scripture, which is that God himself is accessible. Now, that does not mean that God himself has lowered his standards, that's one of the beliefs that you and I might be prone to. If God is to be accessible, he must lower the bar. Uh, if you were to make Harvard accessible to a great number of students, how do you do that as a college administrator? You have to drop requirements. You have to drop grade point average. You have to drop uh, ACT and SAT scores. You have to because, well, on a standard curve in a population, if you set the bar high, like Harvard does, it becomes inaccessible to a lot of people. And that's just true. So if Jesus is to be accessible, we make that false jump and we say, for him to be accessible, he needs to lower the bar. He needs to drop the bar down so he can be accessible to all kinds of people. 
it's often repeated that, well, Jesus hangs out with sinners and tax collectors. He's an accessible guy. But he never does so and drops the bar of holiness. In fact, if you go read each of those parables carefully in stories, you'll notice he actually calls them to repentance, calls them to faith, calls them to dependence upon him, and calls them through his accessible nature to be reliant on him. He's accessible, but he's not dropping the standards to be accessible. In fact, in order to be accessible, he has to himself be the righteousness which is provided on behalf of God. So the accessibility doesn't change by dropping the standards of holiness, as we uh, saw in the the prayer uh, before we started with this text. Jesus is holy. God is holy. The standard is perfect righteousness. So he's accessible by means of him giving us his righteousness. That is where the accessibility is accessed. We make a great mistake, I think, if we, if we realize that God is accessible to us, accessible to sinners, and we stop there and we don't fill in the gap about how he is accessible to sinners. He's accessible to sinners because he provides righteousness. He's accessible to sinners because he, he has merited for us what we could not merit for ourselves. Uh, it's not that he's accessible because he says, well, just go ahead and come my way. I'm not going to call you to holiness and to repentance for your sins. So we're dependent. Jesus is an accessible God. And ultimately, the, the two truths together call us to come to him in our great need. Because we're dependent, because he's accessible, that culminates in us being called to come to him, as he says here in the text, like a child in a childlike way, in a, in a helpless, dependent way, posture, do we come before God. We come before him through Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life, the only means of salvation before the Father. But we, we must come to him. The teaching of Scripture is to repent and believe and to follow after God. There is an imperative for you and I to repent, to believe all that he has taught, and to follow after him. This is, this is not, uh, it is not that he is accessible and so he's just going to let everyone in. There's still a call for sinners to repent. There's still a call for you to repent. And if you're a Christian, there's a call for you to follow after him actively in daily obedience to his call, to his voice. He is accessible, but we have to come to him. Uh, the children here are being brought to Jesus. They're, the object lesson is in their helpless state, they're being brought before him. And he says, that's exactly right. Dependent people need to come to me, and they need to come to me, well, we would say rather quickly. The Pharisees' problem in the whole gospel of Luke and in all the gospel accounts is they don't recognize their dependence. They think that God is far off and inaccessible, and it is those two truths that they think we don't approach God unless we are holy, perfect, and blameless. And that's why they are tempted to these gymnastics of saying, well, we are homely, perfect, and blameless. The New Testament doesn't mess with that. It says... You're actually super dependent in your sin and your depravity. God is super accessible to you. And so between those two truths, you need to come to him. He calls you and he bids you to come. That would be a childlike faith, a childlike dependence on the Father. One commentator says it this way. He says, in the same way that a little child depends upon its own parents for sustenance, so God's children must also depend on their father for sustenance. We are dependent on our parents. God is Heavenly Father. We're dependent on him in the exact same way. Actually, in a more profound way, are we dependent on him. The dependence of a child upon their parents 
is a dim shadow and echo of exactly how dependent you and I are on the Heavenly Father for sustenance and daily bread. No more is this the case than when you recognize that uh, the habit of us praying to bless our food and thank the hands that have prepared it and thank God for giving us food has really, by and large, fallen away. How often do you think when you have food ready for you, a pantry full of food, a fridge full of food, do you think, man, thank God that he has provided this for me? You don't think like that. We, we are taught to think, well, I earned the paycheck, I went to Costco and to Whole Foods, and I bought all the food, and, well, i got to turn the pan on and cook it myself. Why am I thanking God for this food? That's how we think in our daily lives. We don't think that we're dependent upon God for these kinds of things. But we are. The scripture teaches throughout, even of Israel, that God is the one who provides for them the riches, the sustenance, the land which he has given to them. And that has never changed throughout human history. We are always reliant on God for his blessings to us. We are dependent on him for our daily sustenance. We're dependent on him for relationships, for our health to to not fail. And ultimately, we're dependent on him for our spiritual growth. Uh, We go to him in prayer to confess our sins before him. And we pray to him to change our hearts, to change our desires, to change our lives so that we might be conformed into the image of his son. We're dependent for him to work in order to make that happen. We're dependent on him to do something that we can't do ourselves, which is to change our hearts, to change our desires. This is something we come to him to in dependence. Where we go wrong, where Christians often go wrong, is they believe that initially they're dependent on God to access him, and thereafter they are to merit their righteousness before God, merit, and, and eventually they become independent from God. They become no longer reliant on him because they know theology, they know what's good and bad, they, they know what not to do, and they, they know not to do it, so they don't. Now, this, is, this is just not the case. We are always dependent upon God for growth, for sustenance, for life as believers. What's amazing about this text, the simplicity of these verses, is that children are a model of helplessness, but children are also a a really humbling thing for us to identify as. If you think about identifying as a child in that humility, that helplessness, it, it probably makes you uncomfortable if you think about it for too long. Like, how really dependent am I on the father? That's kind of the idea. It's kind of the point. You might have learned if you've been a Christian for some time, a great deal of theology. You might have read tons of great books on Christian doctrine and life. You might have memorized a lot of good Bible verses growing up. Perhaps if you grew up in Awana, you have made it all the way through those various books. Uh, And so you've got stickers and rewards to tell you you've made it, you've achieved, you've arrived as you go along. And eventually, at some point in the Christian's life and walk, they begin to believe that they are no longer a child before God, no longer dependent on him in the same way, and increasingly less dependent upon him. Because now they know. Now they've been instructed. Now they understand. Now they are wise. So they don't need God anymore. What this text teaches us is that entrance into the kingdom is childlike. uh, But the kingdom is really uh, a whole endeavor of childlikeness. It's a whole endeavor of helplessness before God. We ought to grow. Scripture does teach that we ought to grow in maturity. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, that uh, when, when he was a child, he thought like a child, he reasoned like a child, but when he was mature, he gave up childish ways. That's not what this text is commending to us. It's not commending to us childishness, but it's commending to us childlikeness, which is to say helplessness, humility, dependence upon God, but not so dependent, so helpless that we think there's no imperative for us to grow and to mature over time. The kingdom of God is accessible to those who are like children, who enter it. 
That's the clear application of Jesus here in these verses. There's something more to say here, and particularly with our culture of, uh, of suspicion, there's more that needs to be said. Children are, are not just helpless and dependent before their parents. Children are also uh, implicitly trusting of their parents. Children are actually implicitly trusting of almost everyone. It's one of the things that our society knows because our society takes great pains to guard children, as it should, to protect them from those who would take advantage of their trusting natures, those who would take advantage of their implicit openness to others. This is why we guard children from those who would seek an advantage over them in that kind of way. But children's implicit trust is a, is a good thing. It's a commended thing, and it's a, it's a picture we need to understand because disciples of Christ need to be implicitly trusting of their God. Disciples of Christ need to be implicitly trusting of the words that Christ commends to them. And this is important for us to know because we do not often implicitly trust what God says to us in his word. If you've grown up post-enlightenment, which is every single one of us, we grow up suspicious of things that we hear in the text of Scripture, in the Bible, in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, basically anywhere we find it, that doesn't agree with our rational senses. It doesn't agree with how we think the world ought to work. And that dial has been being turned up over time, such that if you were to meet a well-educated, reasonable person today who might have also grown up in the church, chances are there's many things in Scripture that they're suspicious of, unless they have implicit trust. There's many things that we can be skeptical of in the text of Scripture if we take a skeptical posture towards it. For instance, the existence of miracles all throughout the New Testament. And in a, in a post-enlightenment framework, we think, well, miracles don't happen. I don't see those kinds of things. And we become suspicious of them. We look for alternative explanations for the presence of miracles. We look to alternative explanations for the presence of moral commands. We are implicitly not trusting and that is often the case. A disciple of Christ is to be an implicitly, implicitly trusting of him, implicitly trusting of their God. That does not mean, by the way, blind trust. Because we do not commend childishness to people who are growing up in the faith. We commend to them reason and understanding and growth and maturity, but we do not commend skepticism. Now here's what this looks like played out over time. If you read in the text of Scripture a command that says you ought to live your life in this way. You can fill in the blank with whatever thing you've ever thought is kind of an unreasonable thing for God to ask. When you're a young Christian, and when you first come across that, your implicit response would be to say, it doesn't yet make sense to me, but I trust that God is good. And then, to do the hard work of reading and studying and understanding and asking questions so that you might understand. But what we do not do, what we should not do, is come to the text of Scripture, read, God says, I should do this with my life. Live holy. Do not engage in sex before marriage. Fill in the blank. And we think, no, no, no. That's, that's not something that I should do. That's certainly not something God should command of me. That's a skeptical posture. And we begin to think, oh, this is a textual corruption. This is Paul's culture coming through. This is fill in the blank. That's an, a difference between a skeptical and an implicitly trusting frame of reading the text. Now, this is important because... Where the danger lies is that we implicitly trust and then we never ask follow-up questions. If you implicitly trust the text, that's a good start. But a mature disciple is also called to grow. 
to understand, to grow their faith, to nurture it, to study the word, to put two and two together, to reason their faith out. Christians are to be reasonable people because their God is a reasonable God. And so when we come across the text of scripture and we don't understand it, that doesn't mean we just tear a page out of our Bible or take a Sharpie marker and delete a line. What we ought to do instead is say, I trust it, even if it doesn't yet make sense to me. And what I am to do now is I'm to pray for understanding, clarity, and I'm going to read and understand and try to make sense of these words. That's exactly how children grow up in families. They begin to implicitly trust, I shouldn't stick my finger in this outlet because it might hurt me. And eventually they grow up and they understand, oh, it is because electricity runs in the outlet, and that is why I shouldn't do that. But children shouldn't be skeptical. <laughs> children should not be skeptical of their parents because, well, they would, they would fail to understand many things that their parents cannot explain to them at certain places in their maturity. That's the difference between implicit trust and skepticism. Today, we live in a world of skepticism. A world where, well, you've probably had this even this week, where you hear a news story break and you think, is that really true? Because we live in a world that is, is skeptical, is mistrusting. Sometimes you talk to other people who you're friends with and they tell you something and you go, I wonder if that's true. We li- we're skeptical people. We are trained and inoculated to be skeptical of all that is around us. Christian, Jesus tells you to implicitly trust him like a child and then to nurture your faith, to grow in your faith, to mature in your faith so that you might no longer be childish at the end of the day. Little children are a model for us, but we are not called to stay childish in our faith. Now, there's uh, two main ways that this comes out for Christians. Uh, and, and, and things that we need to just understand and throw out there because if you struggled with this, you are not alone, Christian. One of them is this. When we are called to implicitly trust God, that means implicitly trust him even when we don't feel like his words are true. We implicitly trust him and what he says even if we don't feel like what he's saying is right. No more is this the case than when God says of our sin, you are forgiven. That sin holds no weight over you anymore. You have no shame, no guilt, no condemnation for the sin which you have previously committed. How many times does God have to tell you that in his word before you will implicitly trust him and believe him? Christians struggle with this stuff. It's why we are called to implicitly trust our God. He tells us it's true. We believe it to be true, especially when we don't feel like we want to. That's implicit trust of our God. Another way that this comes out is when we think, like Eve did in the garden and Adam did in the garden, and this is Sproul, what he says, we don't believe what God says when he says it. Particularly, we would prefer to sin rather than to obey God because we don't believe that if we obey him, we will ever be happy. Christians struggle with obeying God because they think, if I obey him, maybe I won't access happiness like I would if I disobeyed him. Sproul observes this in the text here, and I think he's dead on, because this is one of the number one reasons why Christians still engage in sin after they are converted, after they are believers. It's because we buy the lie that this momentary sin engagement is pleasurable and therefore will make us more happy than it otherwise would. So we don't trust God implicitly when he says, actually, that won't make you happy. 
that will be detrimental to human relationship. It will be detrimental to your life. It will be detrimental in a number of ways to you. That's another example of where Christians need to learn to implicitly trust their God and then reason it out from there. When you tell someone who's a high schooler that they will be better off obeying God's word and not having sex before they're married, they will implicitly doubt that skeptically because the world around them tells them that is not the case. But go talk to a Christian who's been married for some time and who will tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt one of the greatest sources of happiness and joy in my marriage is the fact that I did not give this to anyone and everyone. It's actually a source of joy in life. And the regret that Christians will feel who have lived their lives opposite and who have come on the other side converted to faith and will say one of my greatest regrets is the fact that I did not obey the word of God because it robbed me in some sense of happiness. Now God can restore all sin. He can restore all wickedness that we have done. But it is still the case that God is right when he says we will be happier if we obey his word. And that is commended to us as believers to trust him. Now that posture of implicit trust is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It is not something that we can conjure up in ourselves. So what are we to do if we struggle with implicitly trusting God? We go to our knees in prayer before the Lord. We go to other Christians and we say, can you pray for me because I struggle with trust? We are like the centurion who says, Lord, I believe and help my unbelief. This is what we ought to do. And this goes back to what I said at the beginning, because we are dependent. We are dependent not only upon God, but also upon God's means of grace, which he puts into our lives, our community, our family of believers, those who will pray for us, who will encourage us, who will rebuke us, who will strengthen us, who will call us to trust our God when we feel like not trusting him and who will support us and prop us up every step of the way until we can. Because we are dependent creatures. And that's good, because when you understand all of that and you put it together in this text, you understand that's exactly what it means to be a child. That is what Jesus commends here, to be a child. So Christian, the one thing that you are asked of today is to be a child again before your God. If ever you've cast off that dependence, that helplessness, and believe the lie that you can one day be autonomous from God, Stop believing that. And once again, hear the words of Jesus here. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace to us. That you have been pleased to take sinners unto yourself, take the helpless unto yourself. Lord, take me unto yourself. For all of us who call you Father, who call you Lord, we are held up by your sustaining hand, by your spirit who gives life, by your words which instruct us, and by your people which minister to us. We are so thankful in every way that we are aware of and in all of the ways that we are unaware of that you have held us up even today. And Lord, we praise your name for you are a God who sustains your hopeless and helpless and very much dependent people. We thank you. Amen.